namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami We had uh, just reached the end of the introduction uh, when we uh, finished yesterday, and this goes on to the next part, which is called the significance of dependent origination. And in the uh, the Bruce Evans translation, this is chapter one. The Buddha presented the principle of dependent origination as a law of nature, which does not rely on the emergence of a Buddha for its existence. The Buddha presented dependent origination as a natural truth in the following way. And uh, this is a um, a passage from the Sangyutta Nikaya, Connected Discourses on Causation. Whether Tathagatas arise or not, that principle of specific conditionality, that's Iddhapajayata, and Pali. Uh, that principle of specific conditionality is constant, certain, and a law of nature. Having fully awakened to and penetrated to this truth, a Tathagata announces, teaches, clarifies, formulates, reveals, and analyzes it. And he says, See, with ignorance as condition, there are volitional formations, and so on. Thus, because this actuality, or this suchness, tatata, this inerrancy, avitatata, inerrancy, for those for whom that is not a familiar word, to err is to make a mistake, to, so inerrancy means uh, something that is, it's always like this, or it, there's no mistakes involved, or it's, this is absolutely true, uh, truly uh, always the case. This invariability, ananyatata, or uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi translates that as not otherwiseness, which is a, <laughs> a slightly uh, esoteric term. But yeah, it's invariably this way. This is exactly how it is you know, uh, in, in all situations. This specific conditionality, Iddhapachayata, is called dependent origination. So that uh, is one, this one particular instance where the, um, uh, the Buddha says the, that quality of uh, avidapachayata, that uh, an idapachayata, idda um, means, or idang is, is this, pachayata means um, conditioned by thisness. Uh, Ajantanisro translates that as this, that conditionality. It's a, but it's a, uh, that, um, uh, see, that basic principle of when this, when this is, that comes to be when, uh, um, with the arising of this, there arises, uh, there, there is the arising of that. That's the, uh, so the essence or the, uh, the core of idapachayata, specific conditionality. And Ajahn Buddha Das, um, for several years, I think four or five years, he gave most of his Dhamma teachings about idapachayata. So it's one, it's one word, but there's a lot to be said about it. There's a, a whole book of his teachings, a whole, uh, say, collection of his teachings on, on that. 
in, the, in his collected writings. The central importance of dependent origination is evident from the Buddha's words. One who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma. One who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination. And that's from uh, a sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, the Middle Length Discourses. Then he says, Bhikkhus, the instructed and noble disciple has a knowledge about this that is independent of others. When this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises, etc. When a noble disciple thus understands as they really are the origin and the passing away of the world, they are then called a noble disciple perfected in view, perfected in vision, who has arrived at this true Dhamma, who possesses a trainee's knowledge, a trainee's true knowledge, who has entered the stream of the Dhamma, a noble one with penetrative wisdom, one who stands squarely before the door to the deathless. That um, uh, is a quotation from the, again, from the Sangita Nikaya, the, the um, connected discourses on causation. Um, so the word trainee, the Pali for that is seka, and that's a, um, uh, say, a synonym for someone who's a stream enterer, uh, who's reached that first level of, um, of enlightenment. And as he says later in the sentence, the trainee's true knowledge who has entered the stream of the Dhamma, uh, one who stands squarely before the door to the deathless. So another way that stream entry is characterized is by saying that the, the, um, uh, the deathless has been, has been recognized or has been known. So there's still uh, a lot more spiritual maturation to come about. Stream entry is just the first of the four levels of enlightenment. But at that, at that point of, um, of, uh, say, understanding and, uh, and say, clar- and clarity of, of mind, of heart, then there's uh, a knowing what the path is and what is not the path. There's a, 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 they're free from doubt. And the, the mind has clearly seen through the habitual attachments to the body, the personality, and self-view, and so on. In the, it's interesting also that um, uh, seka, um, uh, in uh, uh, a trainee, um, is uh, related to the the Thai word suksa, which means to study. So that it's a just uh, like going to school or going to college, or whatever. Then that's to to study something. That uh, seka uh, is related to suksa in uh, in Thai language. Then the Buddha goes on to say in another quotation. Those ascetics and Brahmins who understand these things, i.e., the factors of dependent origination, their origin, their cessation, and the way leading to their cessation, those ascetics and Brahmins are deserving of the acknowledgement as ascetics amongst ascetics, so like summoners uh, among summoners, or Brahmins among Brahmins. By realizing it for themselves with direct knowledge, they are recognized as in this very life reaching and abiding in the goal of asceticism, the summoner life, and the goal of Brahminhood. Uh, and again, that's from the um, uh, the connected discourses. And so within, within that, he's saying that um, uh, if you're a, a, a summoner or a Brahmin, then you're, you're, you're the real deal, rather than just wearing the, wearing the uniform, or having the title, or having been born in that particular uh, family. And there's a whole section of the Dhammapada uh, where he talks about what is a, a true Brahmin, and like saying how a Brahmin is not... Just a question of your birth family and your bloodline, but a, a true Brahmin 
is uh, someone who is uh, pure of heart. And uh, so it's not uncommon in the, the suttas when he, he's talking to, to one of uh, his monastic disciples, he'll, he'll refer to them as Brahmin, as a, as a, 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 a just an ordinary casual form of address that they are you know, one who's uh, a spiritual aspirant. On one occasion, the Buddha warned Venerable Ananda not to misjudge the complexity of dependent origination. Ananda, uh, sorry, Ananda says, It's wonderful, Venerable Sir, it's marvelous, Venerable Sir. This dependent origination is so deep and appears so deep, yet to me it seems clear and easy to understand. The Buddha responded, Not so, Ananda, not so, Ananda. This dependent, which he frequently said, <laughs> Not so, Ananda, is uh, probably the... The, uh, a good title for an Ananda biography. <laughs> Maybe someone's already done that. But, uh. Not so, Ananda. This dependent origination is deep and appears deep. It is because of not understanding and not penetrating this truth that this generation is afflicted and, and become like a tangled skein, like a, uh, a tangled uh, ball of string, like a knotted ball of thread, like matted reeds and rushes, and is unable to transcend the plane of misery. The bad destinations, the lower realms, and the round of rebirth, samsara. Readers who are familiar with the Buddha's life story will remember his reluctance soon after his awakening to proclaim the Dhamma. So uh, then the Buddha is telling this, this story to some of the Sangha members. Because this thought arose in me. This Dhamma that I have attained, uh, attained is profound, difficult to see, difficult to realize, peaceful, excellent, not accessible by reasoning, to be known by the wise. But this generation uh, delights in attachment, takes pleasure in attachment, rejoices in attachment. It's hard for such a generation delighting in attachment to see this truth, namely, specific conditionality, dependent origination. And it's hard to see this truth, namely, the stilling of all formations, the abandonment of all foundations for suffering, the upadi, the ending, the ending of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. If I were to teach the Dhamma and others would not truly understand me, that would be wearying and troublesome for me. So that was the, the, the flow of thought in the Buddha's mind short, shortly after the enlightenment, and just uh, uh, looking around the world and, and considering like there's, uh, there's so much attachment. And the, the word for attachment is alaya. Alaya. Uh, so that... The mind sort of caught in that attachment, identification, grasping, becoming. Um, that uh, the generation delights in attachment, takes pleasure in attachment, rejoices in attachment. So, like, what's the point of trying to teach? Because the whole, uh, the whole planet, you know, all human beings seem to be completely caught up and addicted and and wrapped up in their uh, identification with the, the sensory world. Uh, and, um, and so his, uh, his, his feeling is, if I try and explain this, uh, this subtle and profound insight, you know, no one's going to understand, and that'll be wearying and troublesome. And then that's where the Brahma Sahampati beams down from the Brahma world. The, the Brahma picks up this thought in the mind of the Buddha, and then as it says in the, the this description in the, um, the, the Vinaya, it's a, it's a long account in the Vinaya, uh, beginning of the Mahavaga, that the, the story is told. And uh, the Brahma Sahampati thinks, oh no, you know, the newly awakened Buddha is, uh, is inclined towards inactivity. 
And so, just like uh, Saka, Indra was uh, a, a deity that was inclined to be supportive of and enthusiastic for, for Dhamma teachings. So, Brahma's Ambati, similarly, was even sort of much higher up in the, the Buddhist, in the sort of uh, cos- cosmic pantheon, picked up this thought in the mind of the newly awakened Buddha and said, oh no, oh no, the world, the world will be lost, the world will be utterly lost if uh, the newly awakened Buddha does not incline to teaching, so he beamed down from the Brahma world and appeared in front of the Buddha. And that's the the basis of the invitation, Brahma Chaloka Dipati Sahampati Katanjali Adivaran Ayajata. So it tells that story and says, please, for the sake of those with a little dust in their eyes, please uh, teach the Dhamma, share the understanding that you have. And so then the Buddha listened to that plea of the Brahma, uh, Sahampati, and um, uh, uh, then decided, okay, uh, maybe maybe this this deity is correct, and he cast his vision around the world and, and saw that, uh, yeah, indeed, uh, this uh, this Brahma is is correct. There's some beings with with coarse faculties and a lot of attachments, but some have just a few. And so, for the sake of those with few attachments, with just a little dust in their eyes, then uh, he undertook to to teach the Dhamma. This passage mentions both dependent origination and nibbana, emphasizing both the importance of these two truths and also the difficulty in realizing them. The Buddha awakened to these truths and explained them to others. So any questions, thoughts, reflections on, on any of that aspect? That's a sort of introductory um, uh, picture. That, um, both that they recognizing this is abstruse, telling Ananda, yeah, don't don't underestimate this, Ananda. This is this is abstruse. It's difficult to see. It's hard to understand. It's not just a superficial comprehension. And also the fact that uh, right there after the enlightenment, he thought this is the thing. This is what needs to be understood. And this is really hard to explain. And that the beings are so wrapped up in their their identification, their their attachment to existence, their relishing of of uh, their their attachments that uh, no one's ever going to be able to understand this. So if if the subject of dependent origination does seem difficult to follow, then you know, you're in good company. <laughs> it's uh, it is it is uh, subtle and abstruse, and difficult and hard to see. So any thoughts, questions, reflections? <coughs> Okay, very good. So the um, that's the end of chapter one in uh, the other edition, and it now be- we now begin with chapter two. Uh, uh, in this uh, this one, it's called interpretations of dependent origination, and in this he talks more about dependent origination in various different scales or different ways of uh, applying it, and he talks a lot about. The uh, again the, the the idea of a first cause or a creator deity, and again my um, I think it was probably both from teaching in the USA, but also in in Thailand there isn't a very uh, strong Christian community there, but um, they have been they've had Christian missionaries in Thailand for about four hundred years, and only about I think a small percentage of the population have ever become Christians. But um, Venerable Paiuto um, made the effort to to sort of put dependent origination and the way that it's talked about in some circles, and it's sort of inter- interpreted as a kind of creation story, um, and implying a creator deity. Uh, and so he's he's in this particular chapter he addresses that quite a lot.
So, interpretation of dependent origination. The teaching of dependent origination may be summarized as follows. One, an explanation describing the evolution of the world and the cycle of all life by interpreting some of the Buddha's words in a more literal way. For example, the Buddha's teaching on the origin of the world, Loka Samudaya. And uh, he quotes a particular uh, sutta in the Connected Discourses, um, which I will read for you. So this is uh, the... um, the section uh, the, uh, on causation, uh, which many of these uh, these teachings uh, are derived from, is uh, section 12 uh, of, of the Connected Discourses, and it's just called the Nidana Sangyutta, the, the um, Connected Discourses about co- uh, causation. Nidana is, is causation. So this is Sutta number 44, The World. At Savati, because I will teach you the origin and the passing away of the world, Listen to that and attend closely. I will speak. Yes, Venerable Sir, the bhikkhus replied. The Blessed One said this, And what bhikkhus is the origin of the world? In dependence on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. With contact as condition, feeling comes to be. With feeling as condition, craving. With craving as condition, clinging. With clinging as condition, existence. Bhava. With existence as condition, birth. With birth as condition, aging and death. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure and despair come to be. This bhikkhus is the origin of the world. So too with uh, dependence on the ear and sounds, on nose and odors, on the tongue and tastes, on the body and tactile objects, in dependence on the mind and mental phenomena. Mind consciousness arises, the meeting of the three is contact. With contact is condition and so forth. With birth as condition, aging and sorrow, Lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair come to be. This bhikkhus is the origin of the world. And what bhikkhus is the passing away of the world? In dependence on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. With contact as condition, feeling comes to be. With feeling as condition, craving. But with the remainderless fading away and cessation of that same craving comes the cessation of clinging. With the cessation of clinging, comes the cessation of existence. With the cessation of existence, cessation of birth. With the cessation of birth, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure and despair cease. Such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. This bhikkhus is the passing away of the world. So that's the second exit point from the um, from the cycle, that, uh, the, the, uh, the letting go of craving, when the feeling conditions craving, and then uh, the, that... Uh, that uh, Say at that point is where things are abandoned, and as he says, that's the the ending of the world. Um, so that uh, that's again, the, uh, in, in many places, the Buddha talked about the 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 world as the world of our experience, uh, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, uh, and that uh, that's how he defined loka, the the world, very very often. Any. Questions, thoughts on those? No? Okay, so we continue. So that's uh, um, uh, also the 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 kind of um, the, there are descriptions of Patija uh, Samuppada that talk about the the world in a um, um, uh, kind of 
a, a, a cosmic or a, a kind of a, 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 you know, sort of a, a more grand perspective. So Joanna Macy's uh, book called World as Love or World as Self takes the teaching of dependent origination and makes it into a, a, a teaching on so interconnectedness. And then also I think uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's teaching similarly um, so the, uh, dwells a lot upon uh, interconnectedness, interrelatedness, interbeing. Um, and so there are some, there's some validity to that. But uh, what uh, Venerable Paiuto um, emphasizes here is that, yeah, you can find various teachings that talk about uh, the um, dependent origin, use dependent origination as a way of talking about the the world or the cosmos on a on a larger scale, but that's a a, a smaller representation. So the second uh, explanation uh, that is described, uh, or the way it's used in the teachings, an explanation of describing the birth and death of human beings and the origin and cessation of human suffering. This explanation can be subdivided into two further categories. A. A broad description of one life to another, the passing from one realm of existence to another. This is also a literal explanation, and it's commonly found in the commentaries, where it is systematized and described in great and sometimes intimidating detail. So that's sometimes known as the three, the three lives interpretation of uh, dependent origination, talking about you know, the life before, or lives before this one, this present life, and then lives into the future. And so you do find that in, in the suttas, uh, but it's more commonly talked about in, in the commentaries, and as he says, sometimes in intimidating detail. And then the second one, uh, B, uh, second, say, the explanation is a description of a cycle present in each moment of life. This description offers an interpretation of this teaching implicit in the previous description, but it focuses on a deeper meaning of specific Pali terms or on their practical significance. This interpretation explains the whole cycle of dependent origination in terms of present experience, which is considered to be in line with the Buddha's intention and the real objective of this teaching, as evidenced by many discourses of the Buddha, including the Chaitana Sutta, the Dukkha Niroda Sutta, and the Loka Niroda Sutta. And he gives the references for all of those. Uh, in the Abhidhamma, an entire section is dedicated to the complete sequence of dependent origination arising in a single mind moment. So you can look that up if you want to in the Abhidhamma. It's in the, uh, I didn't realize that before, so it's helpful to know that. It's in the Abhidhamma Bhajaniya of the Pachayakara Vibhanga. I'm sure you'll remember that. <laughs> but anyway, somewhere in the Abhidhamma, you will find, um, in that Pachaya Karavibhanga um, from uh, sections 138 to 90, 92, so that, uh, that uh, talking about uh, dependent origination as a, a single moment. This is one of those areas of Dhamma teaching and practice that uh, there's lots of debate and, and uh, uh, say, uh, people tending to opinionate and, and uh, argue with each other about like the relative values of, of concentration and insight, and, you know, jhana and, uh, and uh, um, vipassana and so on. Um, so that the, the three-life interpretation or the many-lives interpretation of dependent origination or the, the momentary one, uh, people tend to take uh, positions on this. Uh, but as um, uh, uh, Robin Moore, the translator here, was referring to in the introduction that the uh, Ajahn Chah usually talked about it in terms of the momentary experience of the 
and compared it to falling out of a tree and uh, uh, and that uh, it's a it's a whole uh, a process the whole of which happens very very quickly very rapidly and so we use the, the practice to get to know how that uh, how that works um, and uh, also Ajahn Buddhadasa was was very um, forthright very prominent in, in emphasizing the the momentary experience and interpretation of um, dependent origination. They both have validity. They both appear in the suttas and in the commentaries. Um, and uh, uh, if you remember, I mentioned for that previous book, Catastrophe, Apostrophe, the, uh, my emphasis was particularly on the momentary experience quite, quite deliberately. Um, in the other edition, in the, the Bruce Evans translation edition of, of this book, uh, there's a, a note, uh, if I remember correctly, in the in the um, uh, in the back of the book, that the Venerable Paiuto did a, a survey of he went through all the commentaries and, and the whole Tipitaka and to to, to add up the number of of um, ways that uh, dependent origination was represented, and he said in the suttas it's about two thirds of the momentary experience and one third of the, the three lives or many lives. And in the commentaries, it's the, it's the opposite way around. So two-thirds in the commentaries relate to many lifetimes, and then one-third relate to the momentary experience. Any questions, thoughts? Okay, to continue. In reference to explanation number one, that was the one of the, the more kind of cosmic or... Um, uh, sort of creation of the world, evolution of the of the world, um, a kind of Genesis uh, story. In reference to explanation number one, some people interpret dependent origination as a theory of the origin, Genesis, quote unquote, of the universe, declaring ignorance as a first cause. Um, and um, uh, the, he has a little footnote on this, which says. Um, uh, a form of cosmological argument or argument from first cause, which is the, you find in philosophy and theology. Some proponents of this argument define avijja as, quote, an unknowing entity, unquote, which refers to materiality as the origin of life. Others translate avijja as the unknowable or the unfathomable, equating avijja with God. And the term sankara, the second factor, is occasionally misdefined as all conditioned phenomena. So I'm, I notice a small feeling of guilt for having <laughs> come up with that. Uh, my own reflections on, on uh, maybe not guilt, just sort of oh, you know, I was using that same kind of symbolism and making that sort of association in terms of symbolic relevance in that uh, the last um, the appendix to uh, the the other book that uh, I put together, but. Um, Rather than taking it as a sort of a, 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 you know, an idea that a creator deity exists, that I was using it more as a, as a sort of compo- comparable model of of um, uh, how dukkha arises uh, as a felt experience, declaring ignorance as a first cause in a process followed and completed by the remaining eleven factors. This interpretation leads to the view that Buddhism resembles other religions and philosophies that posit a prime agent, for example, a creator god, who is the source of all beings and all things. According to this interpretation, the only difference is that these theistic doctrines portray the creation and governing of the world by a force outside and above nature, while Buddhism describes a causal 
natural process. This interpretation, however, is inaccurate because any teaching that professes a first cause or prime agent contradicts the teaching of dependent origination or of specific conditionality. The teaching of dependent origination offers an objective account of causality, that all conditioned things are interrelated and interdependent. They arise in a successive causal process without beginning or end. A first cause, either a creator god or other agent, is impossible. Therefore, the explanation of dependent origination as describing the evolution of the world is only suitable in the context of explaining a natural causal process of continual growth and disintegration, without beginning and without end. But there's also um, a, a whole section of the uh, connected discourses called Without Discoverable Beginning. Again, you can look this up if you're interested. There's, this is uh, section 15, so the uh, causation is section 12. This is section 15 or chapter 15. Um, it's the Anamatagga Sangyutta, uh, Connected Discourses on Without Discoverable Beginning. And uh, there's quite a lot of suttas here in this whole collection. Uh, we have... 20, there's 20 suttas in this collection. And um, so, uh, and they almost all begin with um, the Buddha saying, uh, Bhikkhus, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering, wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. Then most of the suttas give up this kind of, uh, these kind of images of, of like a long, 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 long time. Um, so, so this this is the first suit just for example. This is called grass and wood. Suppose, because a man would cut up whatever grass, sticks, branches, and foliage there are in this Jambudipa, like the whole of India, um, and collect them together into a single heap. Having done so, he would put them down, saying, for each one, this is my mother, this is my mother's mother. The sequence of that man's mothers and grandmothers would not come to an end. Yet the grass, wood, branches, and foliage in the whole of India, in Jambudipa, would be used up and exhausted. For what reason? Because because this samsara is without discoverable beginning. The first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. For such a long time, bhikkhus, you have experienced suffering, anguish, and disaster, and swelled the cemeteries. It is enough to experience revulsion. Uh, say withdrawing or, or turning away from all formations, uh, dispassion, viraga, enough to become dispassionate towards them, uh, enough to be liberated from them. And so, uh, yeah, and most of the suttas are the, the different images, rather like the, the the one called the fingernail, with respect to um, uh, similes to do with with uh, stream entry. You know, the number of tears that you shed is greater than the, all of the the water in the uh, the stream of tears that you shed as you roamed and wandered through this long course, weeping and wailing, um, is uh, more than the water of the four great oceans. The blood you shed by having your head cut off from being a bandit or a robber uh, is more than the the, um, the great oceans. The mother's milk we've drunk as we've foamed, roamed and wandered throughout this long course is more than the water in the four great oceans. Um, so that uh, you know, there's... Oh, and one particularly memorable one is uh, uh, Bhikkhus, many eons... Venerable Sir, how many eons have elapsed and gone by? You know, how how much time has gone by? 
And the Buddha's, uh, you can always hear his eyes rolling. <laughs> These weren't all given on one occasion, they're kind of different. Um, they're, they're all at Savati. Um, not, not all of them, but a lot of them are at Savati. Anyway, so one day the monks say, Venerable Sir, how many eons have passed? An eon is a, a kalpa, or like a universal age. Um, one way of describing a kalpa is from a big bang to a big crunch. It's, it's seen as, in Buddhist cosmology, the, the universe um, moves in cycles. So you have a big bang, and then the universe expands to a limit, and then it reaches that limit and starts contracting, and then you have a, a big crunch, or um, what they call a big bounce. It kind of collapses to a single ultra-microscopic point, and then a new universe begins. So that's, generally speaking, the, the model that we have in the Buddhist cosmology. So one eon, one kalpa, or kappa in Pali, uh, is, a, is a universe expanding and contracting. So you get that phrase, many cycles of universal expansion and many cycles of universal contraction is a a fairly common term. So they ask, uh, how many eons have elapsed and gone by? (laughs) Since time began, how much time has gone by? Um, Because many eons have elapsed and gone by, it is not easy to count them and say that there are so many eons or so many hundreds of eons or so many thousands of eons or so many hundreds of thousands of eons. But is it possible to give us a simile, Venerable Sir? It is possible, Bhikkhus, the Blessed One said. Suppose, Bhikkhus, there were four disciples here, each with a lifespan of a hundred years, living a hundred years, and each day they were each to recollect a hundred thousand eons. There would still be eons not yet recollected by them when those four disciples, each with a lifespan of a hundred years, living a hundred years, would pass away at the end of a hundred years. So if you do the, 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 the math, uh, do the sums there, so uh, you have uh, each one remembering, so it's 365 days a year for 100 years, assuming they start on day one, uh, infancy, and they're each remembering 100,000 eons each day. So that's um, 365 times 4 times uh, a, a, a 100,000, for one for one year, and they got a, a hundred years uh, altogether. Um, it's not easy to count them and to say there are so many eons, or so many uh, hundreds of eons, or so many thousands of eons, or so many hundreds of thousands of eons. For what reason? Because because the sansara is without discoverable beginning. So even if they did that, a uh, hundred thousand eons uh, each day, uh, for, there would still be eons not yet recollected by them when those four disciples, each with a lifespan of a hundred years, living a hundred years, would pass away at the end of a hundred years. So, the, um, it's a long, 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 long time. Yeah. Let's see, there's a note 258. Bear with me for a moment. I have just a, a correction on the Pali. So that, um, yeah, so you, that gives a, it's a kind of a excessive simile that for, you know, the people recollecting 100,000 eons every day for 365 days a year for 100 years, and still there will be um, time that was not, not recollected. 
the um, uh, the 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 kind of uh, spans of you know, trillions of years or trillions of trillions of, of years or trillions of trillions of trillions of, of years it's just, it ceases to have any meaning they can't, there aren't enough zeros <laughs> to, to to make it up so that's uh, the uh, the section on no discoverable beginning also uh, i mentioned the other day about Achinteya, the uh, the Buddha mentions the the ultimate beginning of things, um, the uh, ultimate origin of things, as one of the four imponderables. So you have the uh, the Achinteya are one is the range of the mind of a Buddha, one is the the all of the levels of jhana, uh, the uh, another is the all the workings of of karma and and vipaka cause and effect, and the fourth one is the uh, ultimate beginning of things. These are Imponderable. The thinking mind cannot encompass those those qualities. So that's all a, a sort of a bit of a backdrop to this um, the the exploration that Venerable uh, Payuta um, uh, has here about no uh, no first cause or no no origin or no idea of a um, of a creator a deity or agent. So, any thoughts questions? Yes, Chris. So they're imponderables, but uh, they can still can they still be known? <laughs> um, well, the the conceptual mind can't a chinta, a chinta in that respect is a, a it can't be thought about. So um, they they I mean the mind of a Buddha can be known by a Buddha. You know, they, it's knowable, um, but you can't it can't form a, a concept or a, a verbal explanation. Uh, because the concepts and words don't have enough dimensions to encompass the, the reality. So, um, yeah, and that's what I find is the best way of describing it. So that if, if uh, you know, this, this glass can, can contain water because it's a three dimensional glass. If we had a drawing of a glass, we couldn't pour water into the drawing. You know, two dimensional drawing of a glass couldn't contain three dimensional water. So, uh, that I feel so that those uh, there's there's uh, uh, say that quality of knowability is not the same as conceivability. That you, know, you can things can be known, but without a, a being possible to to have a concept or a word to describe. And so a, a lot of the Buddha's approach uh, is based upon that because he hardly talks about. Uh, any sort of metaphysical qualities. It's very rare he talks about um, uh, the sort of the nature of, of Nibbana or the nature of ultimate reality and such like. He, he's keeps, he uses very, very simple language. Whereas in the philosophical landscape of his time and, and, to, and to today, then great efforts are made to try and describe those sort of transcendent qualities or, or the sort of metaphysical, metaf- you know the word metaphysical, like yeah. sort of beyond the physical um, the, uh, and perceptible, and so he, right from the very beginning, he realized w- uh, words and concepts they 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 run out at the border. It's like this currency is not valid that side of the border. You know, it, does, it doesn't work. It's it can't contain that. So, and he had this this insight that therefore there's not much point talking about that because uh, it's it's not as though there isn't a reality, but any words or concepts that I use to try and describe that 
they're they they're based upon this if you like the two-dimensional field of experience that we have so they can't they can't describe a three or four or five or you know 20 dimensional reality they, it doesn't uh, it doesn't apply so he uh, he focused the vast majority of his teaching on the path to realizing that that quality yeah this is how the mind can be trained to come to that 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 that, sort of that gateway if you like that border. This is what you need to to arrive to train the mind to arrive at that quality of realization. What exactly or how to describe what happens? So, quote unquote, the other side of that border. That well, you'll find out when you get there, as it were. And and like uh, in many many of Lumpur's Lumpur Sumedho's recent teachings, but and I was referring to the other day about you know, the Dhamma is really unimaginable. You know, if you try and imagine something that is timeless, a quality that is timeless, you know, everything that we imagine is based upon time. Things come into existence; they they hold together for a while. Time passes. We there's there's subject and object. Trying to imagine a, a reality where, where it, which is timeless, unlocated, non-personal. <laughs> you know the. It it, it it can seem disorienting, or that that teaching from the uh, from the Udana. There is that ayatana, that that sphere of being where there is no coming, no going, no standing still, no dying, no reappearance, no this world, no other world, no sun, no moon, no stars. It's like, <laughs> well, you know, not this, not that. So it can seem like a a, a loss of the things that are familiar. But the Buddha also says this is the end of suffering. <laughs> this is the end of, of dukkha. But uh, so to me, it's it's part of the amazing quality of the Buddha that right from the get-go he realized there's no point in trying to talk about this because we don't the 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 tools of language and concept can't encompass the reality. Therefore, don't bother. It'll only be people will substitute the idea of that or the words for that. For the actuality, so far better to train people to put the effort into the mode of direct realization, uh, and then uh, then each uh, you know, the the minds of the individuals can can know it for themselves. And Gary, Alex, you were about to ask something. I was just wondering, like all these like similes, like uh, like you cry rivers of uh, you cry oceans and <coughs> all of that. And there's like uh, monks that have mentioned like visualizing like piles of like dead previous then and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it seems to make people to like arise aversion in in living. And I find that the more I'm sort of practicing and the more I'm sort of in that sort of say sort of thing of just noticing things, the more. I feel like I'm just sort of being more at peace and rubbing along with the world and happier. And I've, I don't want to change it so much. But like <laughs> 10 years ago, I was like, yeah, I'm going to get rid of all this. No more dead bodies for me. <laughs> and now it's just like, man, let the world do its thing. I don't know. I feel like I'm trying to sort of square the circle between the two like, sort of concepts. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, it's not to create a, a version uh, negativity, but um, it's to uh, to help develop the quality of dispassion, which is not the same thing. So that that uh, 
it's like being able to hold the world, be it, uh, and to be attuned to the world without grasping it. That's the that's the middle way. And that's really that. Uh, so I think I jumped over. you just jumped <laughs> over. Yeah, you kind of went straight from from vivavatana to bhavatana. So yeah, the middle way is the is the the balance that is avoids those two extremes and uh, that. Uh, um, I mean, because also it can be the, the, the those reflections. One of them I didn't I didn't mention it to you, um, but one of them is uh, uh, it, it, it's, uh, is a way of reflecting on on this that uh, can bring a lot of, of sort of gratitude and appreciation. So this is uh, this one's called Mother. Um, this is uh, Sutta number fourteen. Bhikkhus, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. It is not easy, Bhikkhus, to find a being who in this long course has not previously been your mother, or your father, or your brother, or your sister. And in, in Tibetan Buddhism, probably a few of you are familiar, they, a, a phrase they commonly use is all mother sentient beings. So they take that principle, so, and that a way of developing skillful attitudes to all, towards all other beings is that Every being that you encounter is likely to have been your mother at a certain point. Presuming you have a good relationship with your mother, yeah. <laughs> with a feeling of warmth and gratitude to, to our mothers. Um, yeah, but they use that so all mother sentient beings is like a, a phrase that rolls off the tongue in the Tibetan Buddhist world. And so it's taking exactly that principle so that even people that we find difficult to love and appreciate, you know, like at the moment Vladimir Putin is, um, Hard to imagine with the appreciation of it, but uh, according to this, even even he might have well have been our mother. Certain all of us, all of us, and each of us here that uh, you've been my mother, I've been your mother over many many lifetimes, and even as a, a concept, whether it whether karmically it's not accu- absolutely accurate, it really reconfigures the way that you relate to other beings. Um, so I, I was. Uh, uh, coming across that in the Tibetan Buddhist world, all mother sentient beings, then it's it's based on that. Uh, there's been such a vast, incalculably gigantic number of lifetimes that uh, we are uh, statistically we're bound to have been each other's mothers over the uh, the countless, incalculably countless eons. This samsara is without a discoverable beginning. One way of determining whether an interpretation of dependent origination is correct or not is to consider the Buddha's intention in teaching the Dhamma. The Buddha focused on things that can be applied to bring about well-being, that are relevant to everyday life, and that solve real-life problems. He considered attempts to reach the truth through metaphysical speculation and debate to be fruitless, just as I was saying. So he avoided that, which is an extremely popular activity and prevalent in the Indian spiritual realm of his time. Metaphysical speculation and debate to be fruitless. Determining what is truly Buddha Dhamma thus requires a consideration of a teaching's ethical and practical value. The worldview that stems from explanation number one uh, on the previous page, that uh, more kind of um, 
sort of global uh, or, or um, cosmo cosmogenic <laughs> model uh, above uh, is suitable and accords with the aims of Buddha Dhamma. It provides a broad perspective that things proceed according to cause and effect, that they depend on natural conditions, and that they, that they neither originate from a creator, creator god, nor do they arise randomly or by accident. Moreover, it's conducive to bringing about the following three practical benefits. First, one realizes that to find success and fulfillment, one cannot rely on hope, desire, fate, uh, divine intervention, or supernatural powers. One only reaches success through concerted action. One must be self-reliant and generate the conditions that lead to success. Second, to generate these conditions, one must, one must properly understand each factor within the dynamic of nature in which one is engaged, as well as understanding the mutual relationship between factors. Wisdom is therefore an essential element in the process. Third, the knowledge of causal connections reduces or eliminates the mistaken identification with things as a fixed self, quote-unquote. This knowledge promotes an appropriate relationship to things and leads to inner freedom. So there's, there's a lot packed into those three points. <laughs> the, uh, um, but I think that the first one there is uh, uh, it's counter to quite a lot of spiritual, religious traditions around the world where, you, where there's a, uh, a lot of appealing to uh, assistance and support and, and, or, or liberation, purification from agents outside. Um, so, you know, oh, oh Lord, grant me purity or, or asking for, for blessings or grace from, from external uh, powers. And not just within the theistic religions, also you find that within some Buddhist traditions where uh, there's a lot of appealing to you know, bodhisattvas or to uh, Buddhas of the past and such like to be providing um, the, sort of the, the liberating agents. But um, certainly from the southern Buddhist world and the, the Pali tradition, it's very much a teaching of self-reliance, and that if, and I don't know how many times over the years people have, have come to me and asked, said, you know, Ajahn, it, it is all going to turn out all right in the end, isn't it? You know, we're all going to be enlightened eventually, aren't we? And um, because among some of the northern Buddhist teachings, there is that that kind of theme that comes across. And I said, well, um, actually, <laughs> according to the Buddha's teaching from the from the Pali Canon and and the the Southern Buddhist world, if we do the right thing, it'll all end happily ever after. But if we don't do the right thing, it won't. You know, it's 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 not just there's not a fixed. Um, it's not that uh, a, a a fixed say a result. But if we if we use these lives and, and train the mind in a skillful way, then there will be uh, beneficial results. If, if we don't, then uh, then there won't be. It's not uh, a fatalistic or a, a, what they call a um, a messianic tradition where the you know, messiah or a, a kind of rescuing agent will come along and make everything all right, or we'll all go to heaven eventually, or we'll become Buddhas in the in the far future. Um, according to the, the the teachings we have inherited in the Pali Canon, that's very much not the case. You know, it's like if you do what's appropriate, necessary, then it re it results in liberation. If you don't, it won't. So it's a bit of a blunt teaching. It's not very consoling. 
um, in some ways. Uh, but it's also, I feel, very realistic and, and, and ultimately much more helpful. Um, so that, it, as he says, it's not based on hope, desire, fate, divine intervention, or supernatural powers. And uh, one of the, the phrases that used to puzzle me a lot when I was a child that was uh, came out through sort of Church of England Christianity was a sure and certain hope. And I, I th- I, I've got vague memories of having questioned my uh, RE teachers on that. Say, but sir, if it's a hope, how is it sure? Yeah, sure and certain. You're, you're certain that you've got a hope, but do you, but if it's a hope, it means you don't know whether it's going to come true or not. Isn't that right? Yes. <laughs> I usually got to kind of be quiet, boy. You know, don't don't be cheeky, you know, and to, uh, for that kind of question. But this it seemed a weird phrase: a sure and certain hope. Um, that yes, you're you're hoping, but if you're hoping, then you're not sure. Um, so that with uh, what we have in the, the Theravada um, uh, formation of the or formulation of the Buddha's teachings. It's a teaching of self-reliance, and we, we do um, help each other out. You know, we support each other with our own sort of caring presence, and we, we look out for each other on the on the human dimension. And certainly, um, you know, we chant paritas, and there, there's the languaging of, of calling upon uh, angelic or, or sort of uh, etheric forces to to be of assistance. But it's uh, it's understood or recognized certainly within the, the Buddha's the Buddha's teaching that um, the what we do with any kind of support or, or blessing or, or, or uh, helpful conditions it's always up to the individual you know what does the mind do with do with that, that supportive presence or those helpful conditions uh, in this moment you know how do we use what's available to us and so that it, it always comes down to the individual uh, personal responsibility self-reliance and uh, so it's a it's a teaching of doing it's not it's a um, it's a teaching of of, uh, of action uh, and making choices and uh, training us the mind to make skillful and beneficial choices so it's a it's more demanding but I would say uh, because we think, well, please tell me what to do. <laughs> okay, can you carry me along? But uh, eventually, uh, that uh, it comes down to the, the choices that we make, and the work that is done to, to train the, this this mind, this life, moment by moment. And so, it's more demanding, but I would say it's it's um, intrinsically more rewarding. Uh, although the explanation of dependent origination as dis, uh, as describing a beginningless and endless evolution of the world is acceptable, its practical value is limited. It is not yet sufficiently cogent or integrated to guarantee the three benefits mentioned above. So just having a, con- a conceptual knowledge, okay, this is um, uh, dependent origination is, is uh, uh, describing a beginningless and endless evolution and causally related process uh, how nature works just having what he's saying here is just having the concept of that understanding or that making sense okay it makes sense well, the concept is agreeable but that that conceptual understanding isn't enough uh, to actually change the the the, the way that the the world is is felt the way this this life is, is felt and known so he says its practical value is limited. 
um, it is not yet sufficiently cogent or integrated to guarantee the three benefits mentioned above, especially the third benefit of promoting freedom. To truly profit from this broad interpretation of dependent origination, one must refine one's investigation by discerning the causal, interdependent nature of all conditioned phenomena. When one develops this clarity in every moment of one's life, the three benefits mentioned earlier are complete, and at the same time one reaches the true objective of the interpretation related to the evolution of the world. So that uh, when that... Um, Say that it's not just a concept or an idea, but there's a practicing with those principles and applying them, and then uh, experiencing, knowing the results of of application. Then those three benefits. So that the first one was um, to find success and ful fulfillment. One cannot rely on hope, and so forth. The second one was to generate these conditions. One must properly understand each factor within the dynamic of nature. And then the third one was the knowledge of causal connections reduces or eliminates the mistaken identification with things as a fixed self. So um, that's so self-reliance, um, the fact that things function according to the laws of nature, and letting go of self-view and self-centered thinking. Those are the three benefits. The explanation of dependent origination as the evolution of the world either in its broadest sense or in a more refined way, is a contemplation of external phenomena. The second explanation, uh, that's the, the, um, both the, the three-life version and the, um, the momentary version of, of dependent origination. The second explanation, on the other hand, emphasizes the internal life of human beings, including the dynamic of human suffering. The first subdivision, uh, the three-life um, version, favored by the commentaries, where it is explained in great detail, the commentaries coin many new descriptive terms for this process in order to construct a clear, organized system. The disadvantage, however, is that this system can appear inflexible and to students new to Buddhism, rather, rather arcane, which means hard to understand, mysterious, difficult to, to co uh, comprehend. The second subdivision, that's the one, the momentary experience of dependent origination, is directly linked to the first, as will be described below. So that might sound a little bit arcane, <laughs> hard to follow, uh, but uh, hopefully that does make, uh, make a, a bit of sense. Uh, but please do ask any questions you have on that, that last section. Yeah. Yes? I have a question about um, desire. Uh, chanda and Tantra. Mm -hmm. It seems to me like desire and desire seems like a wholesome thing, but yet it can be classified as Vibhava Tantra. And my question is, what's the difference <laughs> between Chanda and Tantra? Uh, yes, that's the question. <laughs> well, Chanda, I mean, it takes a lot of practice. I mean, I first heard Lumpur Sumato using that, the, the, that terminology um back in the uh in the probably the early eighties and and I heard him giving talks about that for maybe four or five years before I really got a sense of oh that's what he means that's the, the that's what he's talking about Bhavatana that it really took quite a long time of just watching the mind and seeing 
uh, how things work, to get a feeling for what the difference is. So, essentially, chanda, when it's being applied in a skillful way, there's no sense of self involved in that. And that, that's the, the flag, really, is how much of, of me is this, I've got to, I want to, I should, I've got to get rid of, I am this. And so it, it really uh, took a, uh, that amount of time I, for myself, just watching the, the mind in the meditation and in every everyday activity, just to get to know that I, me, mind feeling, and to know that as an object. To know that, uh, that as, uh, and it really was not apparent at all at first. <laughs> you know, I, I understood the the words of of, uh, of the instructions for insight meditation, and to a degree, I could understand what you know, letting go of self and seeing things as not self was. But to to re- to kind of really internalize that and to get to know, oh, this is the feeling of bhava. This is the feeling of vibhava. It's like this, uh, and then oh, this is taking action or working free of bhava or letting go free of of vibhava tanha this is what it feels like so it's uh, it does just take a lot of of pay, watching paying attention making mistakes <laughs> thinking okay this is this is not vibhava tanha this is just letting go and then you then realizing a month later no it's vibhava tanha and uh, so, yeah, it just takes a lot of just watching and feeling and, and seeing how it operates, and particularly looking at the results. So that uh, uh, if there's a lot of, rather like you know, Anagarika, Alex was saying, okay, I, I'm, I could see, I think it was a lot of Vibhavatana, maybe I'm, I'm tilting towards the Bhavatana. Okay, is that the case? So that sort of sense of, is that the case? And exploring, okay, this looks a bit more like holding on to being and, 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 and having and doing. Ah, so, is that the case? What's happening here? What, what's, what's going on? So using that wise reflection and investigation to get to know that. And you know, it's rather like sort of training your, your ear sort of musically. Like, is that sharp? Is that flat? Is that right on the, on the, on the, on the note? Is that... Uh, and, and it just takes that a lot of patience, a lot of application, and seeing that it's an important thing to to learn, and then slowly, just like with with training your ear to to, to musical pitch or, or any other kind of, of skill, um, with how you construct a sentence or how you you know cooking food, getting the spaghetti just right, you know. <laughs> That uh, is uh, a lot of trial and error and watching and learning, and then uh, after a time, oh, now I know that I know that sound, I know that that flavour. Or that, okay, now this is this is the moment, and it's uh, uh, it it's not something that can really be done in in uh, with a sort of a like a clearly def- de- definable mark or a flag for everybody is going to say be noticeable in slightly different ways for different for different people but it's really that uh watching how those things work and then as i said looking at the results so when you have been putting effort into into your practice or something and and it's been coming from chanda then say okay well that was that was a lot of work what's the result of it well I, i feel yeah, I feel uh, uh, weary, but uh, there's a peacefulness, there's a clarity, there's there's a 
uh, there's no sort of thank goodness that's over or um, yeah, yeah, that was great I want more of that you know, I should do that again <laughs> but rather that effort was made here's the result of it and there's no, no sort of lingering I or me or mine around whereas if it's bhavatana or vibhavatana then when looking at the results of that there's usually a, a, a lot of I and me and mine involved in that Yes. Can, like, say if I sit with the trees, like, and I feel like there's this, like, can it, like, is it, can it be confused? What you think is can it is actually, like, Barbatana. What you're thinking is what? Oh, can, uh, patience. Uh-huh. Oh, sorry. Useless at talking English. I thought you said canny, like, the, no. the, the, uh, no, uh, their understanding. C A W N Y. Like canny trees. So. Yeah. so when you're in that state, <laughs> like you think you you can be, it's like I can sit here all day, I'm at peace with the world. Mm-hmm. But really there's a clinging, but you don't see it because the trees are always there. Mm-hmm. The trees aren't really going to go. And even if those trees go, there's always going to be some other trees that mm-hmm. you can sit under. So can you get confused between like canty mm-hmm. and yeah. Uh yes, yeah. It's, it's, it, any kind of mental state, <laughs> it's possible to to misinterpret. It's one of the reasons why having good spiritual companions, yeah. uh, having good teachings, good spiritual friends, and a, and ridiculous amounts of patience, those are kind of the essential well, ingredients. Well, <laughs> uh, the, it, that, that's what's needed, I would say. Um, uh, along the way, because it's it's very easy to misinterpret things, uh, because the influence of our own uh, our own conditioning, uh, the family dynamics that we ha- we have, the, the the education we have, the language that we speak, our personal history, our preferences, what what we've said, oh, I really want that, or I don't, I, you know, really don't want that, but all of those patterns of conditioning, they, they have their effect. And so uh, the the, uh, the aspect of patience is like, well, this looks really good. So, but you know, what, what's happening here? Or I'm calling this good. What goes along with it? Uh, how, how does this work um, in a long term? Or how does this work in relationship to the other people around me? Or uh, so, how how is this being held? So that wise reflection, exploring what we're taking for granted or what we're assuming. It's like, I mean, I don't know how many times over the years, but great. This is exactly how it should be. And then <laughs> making a huge mess out of things out of the, 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 the wrong understanding. Or um, the, uh, one really dangerous one is, well, thank goodness that's over. I don't have to bother about that one anymore. That that's fatal. Yeah, it's just like taking your hands off the wheel and <laughs> closing your eyes. And <laughs> next thing you know, you're in the ditch upside down. So, um, how did I get here? Why is, why, why is the why is the, the sky up there? So uh, the um, you know, that readiness to to keep exploring, keep investigating, and it's very much a, a, an aspect of, of Lumpur Chah's teaching, Lumpur Sumaita, that sense of you know, trying things out and just not just following a particular practice or a, an idea because it's attractive and or that or this makes sense or I've decided to do this. That yes, there's that part of it uh, to be interested in, and to 
to say develop a particular track. But then, okay, having done that, what's the result? What's the effect? I'm telling myself this is a good idea. Is it? What, 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 what's this led to? Um, or, uh, or we might have said that's going to be really difficult, and to ask, well, is it? Well, actually, no. <laughs> I thought this was going to be really a real problem, but actually, this has turned out a lot easier than I thought it would. So, that a reflective, investigative attitude is so helpful. You're not taking things for granted. So, it's like a skillful use of the, of doubt and inquiry. Um, and then you're really being guided by the actuality of the way the mind works. And so things that are like a strong conditioning of that, of, you know, are afraid of something or really wanting something. Okay, well, I've, I've, for years and years I told myself I really want that. Um, so that wanting has its effect. Or uh, I really, ne- I never liked that. So that aversion or that, that pushing away, that, that's going to have its effect. So you're getting to getting to know how your own conditioning works. This atanyata, those those qualities of a of a well-rounded person, and that that's um, so helpful. And so then, okay, I'm I'm calling this chanda. I'm calling this a skillful effort. This is this. I'm calling this right effort. Is it? <laughs> what's happening here? What what's, what's what's guiding this? What's driving it? And then. The most reliable way of measuring that is that looking at the results and is this increasing dukkha and complication or is it making things more simple (laughs) and reducing dukkha? What's what's the result of this? And using that, looking at the effects of of what's been done, how we're working and then being guided by that. Is this increasing suffering or diminishing it? If it's increasing suffering then be careful. <laughs> if it's diminishing suffering, then it probably means keep going in that direction. Keep your eyes open and your hands on the wheel. So I see ten past seven has come already, so let's finish there for today. <laughs> So